Now, our study today seems to be a departure from the tabernacle, but actually it is not. What we have before us today is the fact that the interval of the giving of the law and the instructions for the tabernacle, Moses spent a great deal of time up there in the mount getting all these instructions, and the children of Israel became a little impatient down there. And we're going to see what happened in the broken law. But in chapter 31, we have the workman who built the tabernacle, and one in particular who was given a special gift for making the articles of furniture, that is, those that were the most difficult to make. Now I'm reading, beginning with chapter 31 at verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and in understanding and in knowledge and in all manner of workmanship to devise cunning works, to work in gold and in silver and in brass, and in cutting of stones, to set them, and in carving of timber, to work in all manner of workmanship. And I, behold, I have given with him, and now you have the list of those that worked with him. And this man, we find out, he made certain things very definitely, and he also made the garments, he and his helpers. Now, they were given a special gift for doing this. The Spirit of God equipped them for it. Now, the question might arise whether Bezalel was an artisan or artificer before. I'm of the opinion that he was. This man was one who worked with the gold and with the silver and with all of these other delicate things. Now, to do this thing for God... He was given a special gift for it. My feeling is that whatever man's equipped to do, that is the thing that he should do, unless God makes it clear to him to do otherwise. In other words, I think that there are a great many people today that are equipped to do certain things that are technical, that are needed in the Lord's work. Now, I find that there are those that cannot speak, and yet they want to speak. I know quite a few laymen that just determine that they are going to be speakers. They're not equipped for it. They do not have even the semblance of a gift, and yet they will do that, and yet these men have remarkable gifts in other connection. Now, I know a man in radio today. He's a technical expert, but he wants to speak. Well, the fact of the matter is, he has a special gift, I think, for radio. Well, I don't think that he ought to be speaking. I think that he ought to confine himself to the gift that God has given him. And I believe that in the church today that there are all sorts of things that need to be done that God gives a special gift for. I remember when I was pastor in Nashville, I had a deacon in the church. He came to me the very first day I was there, and this man had known me from the time I was a boy, and he said to me, Vernon, don't ever call on me 
to lead in prayer. He said, I absolutely am frightened to death. I don't know actually what to say. I have a stage fright that he said, it must be abnormal. I just can't overcome it. And he said, I make a fool of myself when I try to speak in public. Now, this man was an executive. The fact of the matter is, he was superintendent of the streetcar company and had charge of their entire equipment. And that was certainly a place of responsibility. But he told me this. He said, now, look, I can't do anything publicly, but if there's anything that you want done around this church or you want done personally, you let me know, and I'll be glad to do it. And very candidly, I never had a more wonderful helper than that man was. I would call him many times, even on Saturday night. Now, the streetcar company, see, operated all night. He had a crew down there. And I've called him Saturday night to tell him, well, something's come up about Sunday and we need this for Sunday. For instance, the putting up of a screen or the different arrangement or the putting in of chairs. All I had to do is call him and he'd have a crew out there in less than an hour. And I never had anyone that was such a helper as he is. And you know what? Before I left that church, I was thanking God that he did not have the gift to speak in public because it made him faithful at the gift that God had given him. Now, here's a man, Bezalel. I am of the opinion he could have been very much like some layman today. He could have said, now, look here, Lord, I want to wear these high priestly garments like Aaron, and I want to serve you like that. But God says, that's not the way you serve me And in one sense, his gift is more important than that of Aaron. His gift is one that was essential for the building of the tabernacle. And I think God will give you a gift, friends, that will develop whatever talent you might have or gift you might have. You see, God gives us talents, but he wants us then to dedicate them to the Lord and let the Spirit of God take us and use us. And that doesn't mean we are all to do the same thing. There is a wrong impression today that in the church, if you can't sing in the choir or teach a Sunday school class or speak publicly or be an usher, that you're pretty much out of it. There's nothing left for you to do. And I think there are literally hundreds of gifts that God gives to men to serve today. And it's up to the individual to determine, find out what that gift is. And it may be whatever God's given you as a talent that he'd like for the Spirit of God to take it and use it for his service. Now, we have something else in this chapter that is of profound interest, and it's very important to see. And it has to do with this matter of the Sabbath day. And this is something that a great many people pass over. Now, the Sabbath day was given at the very beginning, I take it after creation, that it was observed universally because man having come from the hand of God as his creator and having been given the Genesis account, I'm of the opinion that the creation account was universally known by mankind and it was perverted and changed. Now, this matter of the Sabbath day, though, when you come to the Mosaic system, you find out God made it one of the commandments for the children of Israel. 
And now he makes it very clear that it was just for the children of Israel. Verse 12 now of chapter 31, and I'm reading, and I want you to listen very carefully. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak thou also unto the children of Israel, saying, Verily my Sabbaths ye shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that ye may know that I am the Lord that doth sanctify you. Now, he said it once to the children of Israel, My Sabbaths, it's a sign between me and you throughout your generations. Now, the Sabbath is given now specifically to the children of Israel. And I take it was not given to other people. I do not think it's given to the church at all. When anybody says to me, and every now and then someone likes to pull this type of an approach, they say, when was the Sabbath day changed? Friends, it never was changed. It was done away with as far as we're concerned. We are not under the Sabbath day. That's Saturday. And we don't observe Saturday. That's the day Jesus was dead. We are not serving a dead Christ. The first day of the week he came back from the dead and the church from the very beginning met on the first day of the week. That's when the church was born, was on the first day of the week. The day of Pentecost was on the day after the Sabbath. It was 50 days, you see. Pentecost means 50. And that very name itself puts it on a Sunday, not on a Saturday. And therefore... Today we don't observe it, not because it's been changed. It hasn't been. It was given to the children of Israel, specifically to them. It started off with the whole human race. But man got away from God, and as he did, then God gives it specifically to the children of Israel. I'm not through. Let me read verse 14 here. Ye shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it's holy unto you. Everyone that defileth it, shall surely be put to death. And I'd like to know from these people who say you're to keep the Sabbath day if they keep it all the time, and those of their number who do not keep it, do they put them to death? That's part of it, you see. For whosoever doeth any work therein, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. That's very specific, you can see, and very strong. Very strict. Verse 15. I'm still reading, friends. Six days may work be done, but in the seventh is the Sabbath of rest. Holy to the Lord, whoso ever doeth any work in the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. And a man was gathering sticks, and they stoned him in Israel. Now, verse 16. Wherefore the children of Israel, who's he said? The church? No. Wherefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations for a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Now, they are an earthly people belonging to the first creation. The church is a new creation, and it has a new day, and that new day is the first day of the week.
Now, in chapter 32, again, we are coming to something that is tragic as far as the children of Israel was concerned. And yet, here we see one of the greatest teachings and revelations concerning our God and also one of the greatest lessons on prayer that you'll find in the Bible. Moses was a great man of prayer, by the way. Now, I'll get into the chapter. Chapter 32, verse 1. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not or we know not what's become of him. They thought Moses had gone or that probably had been killed or something had happened to Moses. And now they want to make gods, idols, to lead them along the wilderness march. They were ready to go into idolatry, you see. These people lapsed into it almost immediately. Now notice what happened. You'd think Aaron now would keep them from going into idolatry. No, Aaron did not. Aaron went right along with the liberalism of the people of wanting to return to idolatry. Verse 2, And Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, of your sons, and of your daughters, and bring them unto me. And did you know those earrings in that day were a sign of idolatry? It was a sign these people were serving the gods of Egypt. That's what the earrings meant. Now, they had to bring these earrings, and all the people break off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them unto Aaron. And he received them at their hand. And notice what it says. And Aaron is in on this, friends. And he fashioned it with a graving tool after he had made it a molten calf. And they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Now, can you imagine these people lapsing into apostasy this quickly? Well, it would be amazing to me if it wasn't for the fact that I live in the day that I live in, and I've seen the church lapse into an apostasy that I never dreamed that I'd live to see it. And yet I knew it was going to come someday. Now, notice what happens here. And they rose up early on the morrow, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and to drink, and they rose up to play, which means it was gross immorality. They already have departed from God. They said, all his commandments we'll keep, while they are not keeping any of them. Now, will you notice verse 7? Now, Moses is on the mount getting the law and the instructions, blueprint for the tabernacle. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go, get thee down. For thy people which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed thereunto and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it's a stiff-necked people. God didn't redeem them, friends, because they were superior, are great, are good. They were none of these. God says, I knew you were a stiff-necked people, 
Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. That was a real temptation to Moses. God says, Now Moses, I'll use you like I did Abraham, and make of you a great nation, and I'll still be able to make my covenant good with Abraham. Now, notice what Moses does. Here is an example of one of the greatest prayers in Scripture. Will you look at it now with me for just a moment? And Moses besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Now, God said to Moses, you remember, God says, Moses, get thee down for thy people that thou brought us out of the land of Egypt. Now, Moses really talks back to God. There's none of this pious cant and this pious piffle that I hear today in a great many fundamentalist prayers. I think that there's more hypocrisy today in some of our prayers. No wonder prayer meetings are so dead. If we talked honestly and frankly to God, it would make one of the most exciting meetings in the church. God says to Moses, your people that you brought out of the land of Egypt, they've sinned. Moses said, Lord, I think you made a mistake. (laughs) I don't recall of ever bringing any people out of Egypt, and I want you to know they're not my people. Listen to what he says. They're thy people. Thou hast brought them out of the land of Egypt, and you did it with a mighty hand. I couldn't bring them out. You made a mistake, Lord. Can you imagine anybody talking to God like that? Moses did. He said, Lord, they're your people. They're not my people, and you brought them out. I didn't bring them out. Now, that's the first thing he says. Listen to him the second thing. Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, For mischief did he bring them out to slay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from thy fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people. Now, what Moses says is this, Lord, they're your people. You brought them out of the land of Egypt. But also, suppose that you don't go through with taking them into the land. Why, the Egyptians will say, well, their God was able to take them out of Egypt but he wasn't able to bring them into the land. Therefore, you'll have to bring them into the land. They're your people, and you promised to bring them in. Now, notice the third reason he gives to God. He says, "...remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel thy servants, to whom thou swearest by thine own self, and saidest unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of will I give unto your seed." and they will inherit it forever. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Lord, you made a promise to them that you'd do this, and that's the way you remember he called Moses. He said, I remember my covenant. Now, Moses just calls his attention to it again. Now notice, "...and the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people." Now, I tell you, that moved the arm of God, friends, when Moses prayed like that. I think if we were a little more honest in our praying to God that we had see more answers, that is, more visible answers, I think we'd always get an answer. I think 
The Lord tells most of us no, because we're not really praying honestly to him. Now, notice what this man Moses does. Now, you'd think he'd come down now and soft soap the children of Israel. No, sir. Listen to him. Moses' turn went down from the mount, and the two tables of the testimony were in his hand. The tables were written on both their sides, and on one side and on the other were they written. And the tables were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God graven upon the tables. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said unto Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. Believe me, it was. And he said, It is not the voice of them that shout for mastery, neither it is the voice of them that cry for being overcome, but the noise of them that sing do I hear. Oh, they were having a high old time, friends, down there worshiping this golden calf and living in sin. came to pass as soon as he came nigh unto the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger waxed hot, and he cast the tables out of his hands and brake them beneath the mount. And he took the calf which they had made and burned it in the fire, ground it to powder and strawed it upon the water and made the children of Israel drink of it. And believe me, that was bitter. And Moses said unto Aaron, What did this people unto thee that thou hast brought so great a sin upon them? And listen now to Aaron, crawfish out of all of it. This is really humorous would be if it wasn't so serious. And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord wax hot. Thou knowest the people that they are set on mischief, for they said unto me, Make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we know not what's become of him. In other words, they're blaming it on Moses, actually. Moses has deserted us, so we'll turn to the golden calf. Now, verse 24, listen to this. And I said unto them, Whosoever hath any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it me, then I cast it into the fire. Listen to this, friends. And there came out this calf. You can't help but laugh at that. And I think Moses actually must have laughed. He says, You don't mean Aaron that you poured the gold in the fire, and this calf walked out. That's what he's trying to say. But you remember, it said back over here that he received them at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool. I think Aaron lied, don't you, friends? <laughs> oh, what excuse he made here. This man did this, and now I tell you, and when Moses saw that the people were naked, for Aaron had made them naked unto their shame among their enemies... This matter of nudism, friends, and sex today, and dope is not new. I think you'll look at these people, you'll see the whole bit right here. And now we're going to see Moses, though. And I tell you, he's angry. But did you notice what an intercessor he was for these people? How he laid hold of the heart of God that moved the hand of God. And now we're going to see he's still got a prayer to pray to God for these people. Now, when Moses went down, you wouldn't think he'd ever prayed for these people because I tell you, he was angry. He threw those commandments down, those tablets of stone. They were broken, and he was hot against the people and against his brother Aaron. And poor Aaron tried to cover up, and if he didn't camouflage, and if he didn't attempt to 
evade. He tried to say he poured in the gold, and a golden calf walked out. Now, that, my friend, is an explanation. I'm sure Moses must have smiled at that one, and I know God did, and I'm sure that you and I can smile at that because we've offered some ridiculous explanations like that for what we've done that's been wrong. And then we saw that it was a time of real sin, though, for the people. And then Moses moved in. It was extreme surgery. But friends, when you got a cancer, and I know from personal experience, you want to try to get rid of it. And if it means cutting away half your body, you want to get rid of it. Sin's an awful cancer, and God uses extreme surgery here. And there was the slaying of those that were guilty. And now I begin reading here at verse 26, actually. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. And he said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword by his side, and go in and out from gate to gate throughout the camp, and slay every man his brother, and every man his companion, every man his neighbor. Now, that's serious, and it's extreme. Sure it is, but there's been awful sin. The way that liberalism got into the church, I have lived now quite a while. I can remember that when I came before a church court to be examined for the ministry, they had another boy there, another young fellow, and they asked him questions, and he was graduate of a liberal seminary. I have never in my life seen anybody who knew as little theology and as little Bible as he did. And what he did know, he had all mixed up, and he was as liberal as they come. He didn't have any faith. He had no knowledge. He could never explain the great doctrines of the faith, although he didn't believe them. And the interesting thing is, in fact, one man very impatiently said to him, well, if you don't believe it, at least you ought to know what you don't believe. But he couldn't define it. And then a dear old brother got up and he said, you know, I knew this boy's father. His father was a great preacher of the past, and he was sound in the faith. And I know that this boy will one of these days come around, and he'll be all right, and all that, you know, that jargon that they used back in those days, and old buddy-buddy brotherhood stuff. And they had a motion, and they accepted him. It wasn't unanimous, but they accepted him. And it made me sick at heart to be brought in at the same time with a fellow like that that didn't believe anything at all. Well, may I say to you, that's not the way Moses would have handled it. Oh, he wouldn't have drawn a sword in our day and slain the boy, but he sure would have not accepted him. He would have given that boy a Bible and told him to go out and go to Bible school and learn a little Bible and then come back if he believed it and they'd examine him again. But no, it was all that fault or all, and that's the way liberalism came into the organized denominations today and have taken over. You can't compromise with it, friends. It was Morley who said that compromise is immoral. 
And I think it is, especially in the church. Moses doesn't do a very good job of compromising. I tell you, there was extreme surgery used. And we are told here that those that were guilty were slain. And the children of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And there fell of the people that day about 3,000 men. That cleaned up the camp pretty well, by the way. They'd have been in idolatry, friends. They'd have been destroyed out in the wilderness. Now, a great many people are apt to say, my, it was so terrible and brutal and all that. Well, let's look at it this way. Is it best to cut out the cancer here and save the person or save the nation? Think of the women and the children and the young man and the old man that was there that were not guilty. And had they permitted these men, who apparently are in charge now, they had taken over, what would have happened? Why, that entire nation would never have entered the promised land. They'd gone into idolatry now. They would have been absolutely destroyed as a nation. And that, of course, is what's happened in the church in many places. I've seen church after church, friends, lose its importance, its influence, and become practically nil because of the fact liberalism got in. We today are soft, and we're sentimental, and we're silly. fact of the matter is we're stupid in the way that we are handling evil. And the reason that we are having lawlessness in this land is because that we have not only soft-hearted judges, but they're soft-headed judges. My friend, the law is to be enforced. Now, will you notice, we move on to verse 30. It came to pass on the morrow that Moses said unto the people, Ye've sinned a great sin, and now I will go up unto the Lord. Peradventure, I shall make an atonement for you. That is, an atonement was that which was made to cover up sin. That's the way it was handled before Christ came, and then it was removed. Now, verse 31 is actually... Another reason that Moses gives to God for him not destroying the people, but taking them up into the promised land. We saw three last time. Now, here is the fourth. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. What is that? Confession. If you want to get along with God... You will have to agree with him about sin. Sin is sin, and it must be confessed. And I don't care who it is, and these are God's people. And Moses goes up and said, we've sinned. This people have sinned. It's a great sin. They made gods of gold, and he spelled out the sin. And I think that's the thing we ought to do when we confess our sins. Spell it out before God. Now listen to Moses. Verse 32, "...yet now if thou wilt forgive their sin..." I don't know what Moses was going to say after that, because now he changes his tact and listen to him. "...and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written." And Moses said, "...I take my place with the people, identify myself with them." And if you intend to blot them out, blot me out. Remember, God told him, I can make good my covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by just simply 
making a nation from you. Moses said, Now identify myself with the people. If you don't intend to bring them into the land, then blot me out with them. Now notice, this is what moves the heart of God that moves the hand of God. And the Lord said unto Moses, Whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. God deals individually and personally with sin. Verse 34, Therefore now go, lead the people unto the place of which I have spoken unto thee. Behold, mine angel shall go before thee. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Now, God says, I'll deal with it personally. And I will take the people up, though. I'll take those up that have not sinned. And my angel will go with me. Now, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, we said, is the visible presence of Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ. The angel of the Lord always reveals the presence of deity, God appearing to man. Now, will you notice as we come now to chapter 33, And the Lord said unto Moses, Depart, and go up hence thou and the people which thou hast brought up out of the land of Egypt, unto the land which I swear unto Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, Unto thy seed will I give it. And I will send an angel before thee. Now, this is the angel of the Lord. And I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, and the electric light. All of them are going to be driven out, you see. Now, will you notice, he's now preparing them to enter the land. And we'll see them resume the wilderness march in the book of Numbers. Actually, the book of Leviticus is the continuation of the instructions for the service of the tabernacle, which now we'll see them begin to set up. They're building it now, and it will be set up, and it'll be the place where they will worship. Verse 3, God says, I'm taking you into this land, unto a land flowing with milk and honey. For I will not go up in the midst of thee, for thou art a stiff-necked people, lest I consume thee in the way. Now, actually, to say God dwelt with them or dwelt in the tabernacle is not quite accurate, of course, to say that. God never has occupied a building. That is always a pagan, heathen notion. That's where he met with them. Or, let me turn that around, that's where they approached God in God's method. And that's actually what the tabernacle teaches, approach to God. And it all, as we've said, reveals Christ and the way that we approach God today. It's given to us in picture form. Now we're told here in verse 4, And when the people heard these evil tidings, they mourned, and no man did put on him his ornaments. And those ornaments were heathen, remember. For instance, the earrings that they wore. They brought those and made the golden calf. That was an evidence that they worshipped a certain god. It's very much like today a person wears a little cross. However, it's become meaningless. But the purpose of it is to reveal that the person who's wearing it is a Christian. Now, verse 5, For the Lord had said unto Moses, Say unto the children of Israel, Ye are a stiff-necked people. Now, I said when God came down to redeem them, 
He didn't come down and redeem them because they were superior or they were better than others. God's very careful here, and he's repeated this now. This is the third time. And he says, "'Ye are a stiff-necked people. I will come up into the midst of thee in a moment and consume thee. Therefore now put off thy ornaments from thee, that I may know what to do unto thee.'" In other words, take down your sign that you're a heathen and pagan and take a stand for God. And I personally think that was the reason that water baptism was so all-important there in the early church. It was an evidence that they had left the old, and now they were taking a stand for the new. And I think that it should give that kind of a testimony today. And the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by the Mount Horeb. And Moses took the tabernacle and pitched it without the camp. Now, the tabernacle is being constructed. We'll have details of it given a little later, but apparently Moses set it up first without the camp. It came to pass that every one which sought the Lord went out unto the tabernacle of the congregation which was without the camp. Now, this tabernacle here was a tent of meeting. The tabernacle is not constructed yet in all of its detail. It's just now a tent of meeting, and it's just the bare bones of it. I think, frankly, just nothing in the world but maybe that outer fence that went around it, or just a tent put up. That's what we have here. Now, it came to pass when Moses went out under the tabernacle that all the people rose up and stood every man at his tent door and looked after Moses until he was gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass, as Moses entered into the tabernacle, the cloudy pillar descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord talked with Moses. Now, we have something here that I hope that I can clarify. We have this question today, has anyone ever seen God? And the answer is, of course, no man hath seen God at any time. And yet the Lord Jesus said, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. Now, the Lord Jesus is the revelation of God because he is God. But he was veiled in human flesh, you see. Back here it was the angel of the Lord. And though he was there and talked with him, talked with Moses, and the Lord spake unto Moses face to face, as a man speaketh unto his friend. It's just like you and I would stand face to face and talk to each other. But Moses didn't see God, as we shall see. And he turned again into the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, departed not out of the tabernacle. Now, this is, I think, the third time that we've had this mention of Joshua. You see, he's a man God is preparing to succeed Moses. And I don't think anyone suspected this at this time. When we get to Joshua, we'll see he was probably the most unlikely person of all. Now we have Moses turning to God again. He was a great man of prayer. Verse 12, And Moses said unto the Lord, See, thou sayest unto me, Bring up this people, and thou hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Yet thou hast said, I know thee by name, and thou hast also found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way, that I may know thee, that I may find grace in thy sight, 
and consider this nation is thy people. The thing that Moses wanted is the thing that Paul said, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. It's the same thing Philip meant, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. And I think every sincere, real child of God today has a desire to want to know God and to want to know Christ. Now, God answers him, verse 14, and he said, My presence shall go with thee, and I'll give thee rest. Now, you see, it's the presence of God. And he said unto him, If thy presence go not with me, carry us not up hence. Moses knew he couldn't make it on his own. For wherein shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? Is it not in that thou goest with us? So shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. That's important to notice. God made them a peculiar people for a very definite reason, as the church is to be a peculiar people today. And that means a people for God. That doesn't mean we're to be oddballs. Verse 17, And the Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken, for thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. Now, Moses becomes very intimate, you see, with God. He said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. He couldn't see God face to face, you see, actually. He said, I'll make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I'll show mercy in whom I will show mercy. And Paul uses that in Romans, you remember. God is sovereign. And I don't have time to go into that today. Verse 20, And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. And you just well write that down, friend. You're not going to see God face to face. Not today. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock. It shall come to pass, while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in the cleft of the rock, and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by. And I will take away mine hand, and thou shalt see my back parts. That's been an unfortunate translation. What they would see, a representation of God. Because God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. But God says, but my face shall not be seen. That is only a representation of God. Now, the glory, the Shekinah glory was that. You remember the Lord Jesus said that when he came the second time, there would be the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. I think that sign is the Shekinah glory. I'm of the opinion that that's what it will be. But in that day, God's glory was revealed. Now, when Christ came, he took upon himself human flesh. And when he did, the glory was not there, you see. It was not there when he came. He took a very humble place. But he was God, you see. And therefore, that's the reason he could say, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. Now, you and I today are not going to see God. We're going to see the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will be in human form because that's what he took when he was down here. And he today is in a glorified body. And we shall be like him. This is the anticipation and the hope of the believers, those who are walking today by faith, friends. And that's the way Moses is going to walk. But now he says, your presence must go with us. 
And we need His presence today, friends, to face the problems of every day. Now, friends, as we come today to this 34th chapter, you'll notice it, and I trust that those of you going through with us will read along as you go. You'll find that it'll make the study more interesting to you, I'm sure. You will wonder how in the world it could ever have any application for us today. And yet, all Scripture is profitable, and this Scripture is also. And I'm reading now at verse 1. And the Lord said unto Moses, Hew thee two tables of stone like unto the first. And I will write upon these tables the words that were in the first tables, which thou breakest. And be ready in the morning, and come up in the morning unto Mount Sinai, and present thyself there to me in the top of the mount. And no man shall come up with thee, Neither let any man be seen throughout all the mount, neither let the flocks nor herds feed before that mount. And he hewed two tables of stone like unto the first, and Moses rose up early in the morning and went up into Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and he took in his hand the two tables of stone. Now you have here actually the second tables of the law, The first, you'll recall, when Moses went down at the time they made the golden calf and worshipped it. After breaking those, he now comes back to the mountain, and he has with him these blank tables now. Verse 5, And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And this is very important to see, for this is a tremendous advance for both Moses and the children of Israel. He's proclaiming now his name. A name has a meaning. And I do not mean by that like you find in the Old Testament that so many names have a certain meaning, but that a name always conjures up in the thinking of people certain things. When you hear the name of Caesar, what do you think of? When you hear the name today of Nazi, the Nazis, what do you think of? What do you think of when you hear the name Egypt or the name Israel? Well, God's proclaiming now his name, and it comes out of the experience that these people have already had since they left the land of Egypt. Now, will you listen to this? This is a glorious revelation of God. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, that is, Jehovah. And now he says, Jehovah God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty. Now, God does not extend mercy by shutting his eyes to the guilty or by just saying, well, we'll forget it. He doesn't. Sin must be punished. There must be the penalty paid. And he by no means clears the guilty. But what happens? He's keeping mercy 
and he forgives iniquity. And how does he do it? Well, because a sacrifice has been provided. And every sacrifice they made in that day didn't take away sin, but it pointed to the one who did when he came 1,900 years ago. So this is still a marvelous revelation of God. And it says, "...visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children under the third and the fourth generation." And today, you need to remember that you can commit a sin that will affect your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren and your great-great-grandchildren. I was taking abnormal psychology in college, and it was actually my second major, and I almost accepted a scholarship to go on to study it. To me, it was quite fascinating. We went over in Tennessee to a place called Bolivar. That's where the mental hospital is. And the man in charge was speaking to our class showed us the different forms of abnormality. Here were the schizophrenias. Here were those suffering from paresis. Here were others that were suffering from some other mental disease, manic depressive psychosis, or some other form. And he showed us one group. And some member of the class asked him, what caused the disease? Well, he said it was either the sin... And that was the doctor's answer. The sin of the fathers are the sin of the grandfathers. And he said it could have been the sins of the great-grandfathers. And a doctor in Nashville took me one time to the hospital one morning as he operated on some children, blind children. But it was to give them partial sight. And I asked him, I said, what made them blind? He said, was the sins of their fathers. Believe me, friends, you don't beat God. You don't get around him. You don't fool him. You don't break his laws with immunity. God always, always works the same, and he doesn't change. But thank God, you can always say in the first revelation here, he keeps mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity. We only turn to him. Now, will you notice, he says, verse 8, And Moses made haste, bowed his head toward the earth, and worshipped. And he did well, too. This is a marvelous revelation of God. And he said, Moses now speaking, If now I have found grace in thy sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray thee, go among us, for it's a stiff-necked people. And here we go again. This is about the fourth time these people have been called a stiff-necked people. And I hope by now you realize God never saved them because they were superior or because they were doing so well or promised to do so good. They are a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for thine inheritance. Wonderful prayer of Moses again, you see. Verse 10, and notice, and he said... Behold, I make a covenant. Now, it's God speaking to Moses for the children of Israel. Before all thy people I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth nor in any nation, 
and all the people among which thou art shall see the work of the Lord, for it is a terrible thing that I will do with thee. Now, the terrible thing here isn't quite like it sounds to us. It means to incite terror. It doesn't mean it's terrible in the way we think of a thing being terrible. Now, God says he's to do this. Why? Well, it was part of the shield that God was putting around these people. They would have been devoured by the enemy had he not done this. Verse 11, "...observe thou that which I command thee this day. Behold, I drive out before thee the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, and the Electrolyte." He's driving them all out, and this is about the third time he's mentioned this. Now he says, "...take heed to thyself, lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land whither thou goest, lest it be for a snare in the midst of thee. Now, God warned them not to make a covenant with the people in that land. Now, when the Gibeonites came, you will recall, to Joshua, after they got in the land, they pretended they had come from afar, and they had old stale bread to prove it. At least it proved it to Joshua. Now, will you notice verse 13, "...but ye shall destroy their altars, break their images." and cut down their groves. And the reason they were to do this, God says it'd be dangerous for you to make a covenant with them. Association would bring you back to idolatry. For thou shalt worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. You'll worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. And you don't need to apologize for God being jealous. I heard a wife once say, My husband is not jealous of me. And she was boasting of that. Well, I want to say this, and I didn't say it, but I wanted to at the time. And I said, I think you could also say that he doesn't love you then. He's not jealous of you. You see, anything or any person you love, you're jealous of them. Not in a wrong way or an evil way, but... Since you love a person, you have a concern and a care for them. Verse 15, "...lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they go a-whoring after their gods, and do sacrifice unto their gods. And one call thee, and thou eat of his sacrifice, and thou take of their daughters unto thy sons, and their daughters go a-whoring after their gods, and make thy sons go a-whoring after their gods." Thou shalt not make thee molten gods. Now, that land was absolutely just covered with idolatry, just like a dog's covered with fleas. That land was filled with idolatry and with gross immorality. And God is warning them to be separate from those people, make no covenant with them at all. And they are to be destroyed, actually, or driven out of the land. And, of course, the critic down through the years has sure harped on that. Well, why? Well, because he hasn't really understood or apparently investigated just why God did want them put out of the land and warned his people not to make a covenant with them. Of course, his people did go into idolatry. That was the thing. They broke at this particular point, and that's the reason they were sent into Babylonian captivity was because of idolatry. They had gone into idolatry. And you find out they did this very thing here. But there's something else. 
venereal disease. It was epidemic stage. That's known today that that was in that land. It would have polluted the entire human family had God permitted them to remain in the land. But he didn't. He had to clean them out. And it was a clean-up job that he did. Now we find that he goes on here with his directions that he's giving them. He speaks to them here in verse 18, "...the feast of unleavened bread shalt thou keep." You see, now he's beginning to prepare them to enter the land. And he says in verse 23, "...thrice in the year shall all your men children appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel." And then he gives a great many details here concerning different things. For instance, verse 25, "...thou shalt not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leaven." And he says in verse 26, "...the first of the first fruits of thy land thou shalt bring unto the house of the Lord thy God." They were to put God first. And later on he gives them the feast of first fruits, by the way. And these are all very wonderful laws, but I'm not inclined to spend too much time right in this section. And I move on to chapter 35. And again, the Lord returns to talk to them about the Sabbath day. This is the third time. And I'm reading at verse 1 of chapter 35 of Exodus. And Moses gathered all the congregation of the children of Israel together and said unto them, These are the words which the Lord hath commanded that ye should do them. Six days shall work be done. But on the seventh day there shall be to you a holy day, a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. Whosoever doeth work therein shall be put to death. Ye shall kennel no fire throughout your habitations upon the Sabbath day. Now you'll find out that as we go along, the Lord insists, first of all, that the reason for the Sabbath was because it belongs to the first creation. God rested on the Sabbath day. Then he told them that it was a very particular and definite relationship between him and the children of Israel. Because as mankind left the creative hand of God, he got away from God. And there came a day when he no longer recognized God. He began to worship the creature, and he gave up the Sabbath day. Now, God said that it was then a peculiar relationship between him and the children of Israel. Then he began to put down these strictures that actually apply more to the land and the people than they would to any other place. If anyone did any work on the Sabbath day to be stoned to death, it'd be very hard to carry on our society today without somebody working on the Sabbath day. And that would be Saturday. Of course, that's the Sabbath day. And suppose no fire was to be kindled on the Sabbath day. The problem would be great in the frozen north, you see. This was accommodated to that land over there. Now you will notice verse 4, And Moses spoke unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord commanded, saying, Take ye from among you an offering unto the Lord, whosoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it an offering of the Lord, gold and silver and brass. Now, you'll notice that these gifts for the making of the tabernacle were to be voluntary. 
The people were not required and no demand put upon them at all. This is not even the tithe here at all. This is to be a voluntary gift. And here are the things that they were to bring. Not only the gold and silver and brass, but in verse 6, blue, purple, scarlet, fine linen, goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, badger skins, chitim wood, oil for the light, spices for anointing oil, and for the sweet insects, and onyx stones, and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastplate. And these were the different things given. You see, in that day, there was no such thing as a legal tender. That is like our dollar bill and five-dollar bill or a 50-cent piece. There's nothing like that. And the method of barter was the exchange of goods. And here you have them giving these things to the Lord's work. And I feel very frankly that this is a way today that a great many people can serve the Lord, by giving either things that they have. Down in San Diego, I was down there several years ago. A man had two Ampex recorders. They are the very best. He bought them thinking they would be very serviceable going around to hospitals. And he found out they're a big recorder, that they took up a great deal of space and were rather awkward to take around. So he had them stored there at his house. And he said to me, I don't need them. If you can use them in your ministry, we'd like for you to have them. And very frankly, these two recorders have become very valuable to us because it means we would have to go out and spend a great deal of money to get them. And they came in at just the right time. It's amazing today. A great many people think that you have to always write out a check. Well, that's needed also. When we asked for money on the radio to get one of these machines that duplicates, and it's not called a duplicator, it's called something else, but it will take one of my tapes, the one I'm making right now, and it will make, I think, six at one time. And we keep that machine busy. It's just continually repeating, you see. And that was given to us by a dentist who's very much interested in the program. He bought it for us so that we found that there are more ways than one to serve the Lord, and that's the way these folk have done. And you'll find out, and I'm not going to read all of this here, but it's amazing the different things that the people gave. Now, of course, the question will arise, well, where did they get them? There were slaves in Egypt. Now, remember again that they collected back wages. They'd been in slavery a long time, and they were paid. The Egyptians were glad to get rid of them and pay them off, and that's what they did. And they left with a great deal of the wealth of the land of Egypt. Now we come to verse 30. And Moses said unto the children of Israel, See, the Lord hath called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. He hath filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, and in knowledge, and in all manner workmanship." Now, this is the man that we'll see. He is the one made these articles of furniture that are so important, by the way. And we find here in verse 34, "...and he hath put in his heart that he may teach both he and Aholiab, the son of Ahisamash, of the tribe of Dan." So, you see, he was able to pass on this gift that God had given him. 
And them hath he filled with wisdom of heart to work all manner of work of the engraver, the cunning work. And so this tabernacle was a beautiful thing. It was a jewel in and of itself, not large, not a great big warehouse, but a very small building that was just like a precious jewel, and it's been variously estimated of the amount of money that went into it. And I think it's conservatively estimated that at least five millions of dollars went into the construction of this tabernacle according to the value of the metals in our day. And I expect right now it would go much higher than that.